So as I mentioned, we're going to be in Titus. We're starting the new chapter. I'll ramble a little bit, but not too much. If you want to hear a review, go back to the sermons from last week or previous weeks. Uh, but I'll ramble a little bit uh, because I ultimately want to begin with some illustration, with, with a series of very, 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 very short stories. Uh, but we're in this letter, uh, in this book called Titus. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that we have uh, begun to teach or walk through is that Paul is writing to this young pastor named Titus who is on the island of Crete that's off the coast of Greece. And so Titus has been sent here uh, to do one of two things, uh, to plant churches or to develop leaders in existing churches. And so Paul, in his writing, is, uh, is, is very pastoral to Titus uh, because they have a really close connection. They're really tight. Paul considers him like a spiritual son. And so he is very pastoral in his approach to Titus. And at the same time, he also is very urgent in his writing to Titus because of things that are ultimately happening in Crete. He has a lot of work ahead of him. He has a great task that's ahead of him. And so the first three weeks, as we walked through chapter one, we unpacked several themes. We unpacked God's uh, plan for salvation and how he reveals himself to those who are his. We unpacked what it looked like for uh, the qualifications of a godly pastor and ultimately a godly leader. Last week, we looked at false teachers and uh, the significance of us being in God's word so that we can rebuke them for the purpose of pointing them to sound faith. In chapter 2, there's a transition in the tone. Chapter 2, I think a Titus is probably my favorite section out of this, this whole letter uh, because it's nothing about, it's all about teaching. So it seems very appropriate. I just thought of that. Anyway, uh, so it's all about teaching. And so his tone changes. And it goes from, man, urgency to exhortation to encouragement to reminders, Right? And so we'll, we'll open up chapter two. I'll read it. And then, uh, and then like I said, I'll, I'll jump into some, uh, some illustrations, some stuff I wanted to share with y'all. This is what he says, starting in verse one, he's telling Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, to their own husbands, excuse me, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, he, he turns it uh, to the young men now. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And he turns it back to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That means stealing. They're not to steal, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. If you have your Bibles open, that word adorn, I want you to circle it. I want you to underline it. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal. That's very intentional. He's not just being poetic. He's being very intentional when he uses this word. And when we get there, I'll tell you more about it. So I remember, uh, man, I remember being a young Christian. Uh, not that I'm old, not that that's bad. 
was just all bad. <laughs> okay. Hey, man. I'm on Diet Dr. Pepper, not coffee today. Okay, here we go. So I remember being, yeah, whatever, man. I remember being a young Christian, okay? It was in my early 20s, and I was learning a ton of stuff, and I was surrounded by a, a ton of older men. And uh, some of these guys are, are in here today. None of them know any of what I'm going to share. And so I'm just going to go kind of story by story, and then I'll kind of I'll wrap it up with what my point is. I remember being uh, a young dude and, and, and single, and I was hanging out with Gary. If some of you know Gary, some of you don't know Gary, if you don't know Gary, you need to know Gary. And so uh, we're hanging out, and this is one of several times that I got to hang out with Gary, and uh, I can't remember where we were, but nevertheless, I remember asking Gary how, did, how he met his, his lovely wife, Anne. She's awesome. If you haven't met Anne, you need to meet Anne. I'm sure she'll come up to you later. Um, and I remember asking Gary, well, how, how'd, you, how'd you meet Anne? So he goes on to share the story of how he met Anne. And, and it was a wonderful story. Um, but what I walked away with was this thing that he, he kept on repeating to me. He kept on repeating, uh, man, but there was this specific prayer. He kept on using that, that phraseology. There was this specific prayer that there was this point in his life where he was coming before God and he was just putting everything on the table. And he, when he was putting everything on the table, one of the things that he began to talk about was uh, the kind of woman, uh, man, he was, he was looking for that he prayed God would bless him with, that, man, if I could meet this this, this woman, that would be awesome. And I remember he goes on to talk about all these specific characteristics. And at the end of it, I remember, I think he took a sip of his coffee and he goes on and says, in his prayer, as he's telling me this, he takes a sip of his coffee and he says, and then I asked, if, man, just a cherry on top, if she could sing. That was, that was the, the specific prayer. And I remember walking away thinking two things that was really specific and he was really confident in going before God. And I love that. I love how confident he was. Right? I love how confident he was because he was approaching the throne of grace as a son. And that was, that was awesome because I, I, even though I was a young Christian, I didn't think I could have that kind of access to God like Gary did. And I walked away just thinking, wow, like that, was, that was awesome. And so here we are 10 years later, I still think of that to this, to this day. Some of you remember Pastor Tom. Right, some of you don't know Pastor Tom. He's a cool guy. He's up in San Antonio now. And he was one of the guys that began to, one of the men that began to invest in my life from day one. Right? I remember one time we were talking about discipleship at Jason's Deli. And he was nervous because he had just started discipling a couple of other young men. And so he says, would you like to be discipled? And before he finished answering or asking the question, I said, yes, I don't know what that is. Let's do it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I'd never heard the word. I'd never, I'd never, I'd never knew what this this journey was going to be. Anyway, I remember uh, always going to Tom's house as, uh, like sometimes when we'd run out of money, Tom would always invite us over to his house. He'd cook his breakfast. And so I always sat in this one same chair. And I remember at the beginning when I would go to Tom's house, he would make breakfast tacos and he would tell me about his day and tell me about his week. And he'd be asking me all sorts of questions. What are you reading? How are you doing? All this stuff. And I remember his wife, Selena, uh, would come in and out like she was doing stuff around the house or she had to go to work and stuff like that. And I remember there would be several occasions where Tom would 
pause in the middle of our conversation and he would go and check on Selena. He would go and do things for Selena. He would go and wash the dishes and make sure the girls had what they needed before they went to school. And they would do all of these things. And I remember walking away from that occasion or several of those occasions, uh, just really um, surprised. I'd, I'd never seen a man serve his wife in that way. I'd never seen a man serve his wife in a way that was aside from provision. And so that was, that was very cool. And I remember just taking that with me uh, along the way. At one point, I lived in Denton, Texas. It's just north of Dallas. I love Denton. Uh, and I uh, served on staff at a, at a church called Christ Community Church. Uh, but because we're cool, we called it C3. And uh, I remember uh, hanging out with uh, Ross. Ross is the lead pastor. Man, I love Ross. He is awesome. He's the biggest sci-fi nerd I have ever met. Uh, and, and, and so he has four kids. And I remember this one time he invited me over to the house and we're hanging out. Uh, and then he says, oh man, I got to put my kids to, to bed. Why don't you come with me? And so he reads four kids. One of them slept in their own room. She's the eldest. And then the other three slept in one room together. Each one had their own bed. And so Ross starts reading them bedtime stories. I'd never seen that. And so he's telling, like, he's reading them bedtime stories. He's reading them bedtime stories. And I'm just sitting there feeling a little awkward because I, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing other than listening. And then his youngest, his name is Max. Max is really cool. I love Max, right? Uh, at the time, Max was maybe about four or five. And so Max is acting up. And so Ross tells him, hey, you need to stop. You need to stop. Well, Max doesn't, right? And so Ross uh, grabs Max and he, and he taps me on my shoulder. And he says, why don't you just go ahead and sit in the living room? And so he taps and he's holding Max really tight. And Max knows, right? He knows he's about to get disciplined. He knows he's about to get spanked. And, uh, and so it wasn't necessarily awkward, though. It was tense because I was just expecting to hear that, like, real quick snap. And so Ross goes into the bathroom with Max, and he closes the door. And I've never heard a man sit down and preach the gospel in 30 seconds to Max before he disciplined him. And so I could hear Ross talking to Max and telling him, man, God has called me to love you and protect you. Uh, man, God disciplines daddy every once in a while too. Uh, this isn't because I don't love you. This is because, in fact, I do love you and I want to correct you. And then you hear that real quick. And Max is like, ah! And then like, but then, and then you see Ross come out of the bathroom and he has Max. Like, and, and Ross is a big dude. He was a former baseball player, big, big guy. Max at the time was little. And so he just had him up on his, on his chest. And then five minutes later, Max is, you know, hanging out with his brothers and sisters and just enjoying it. And I'd never seen that before. Additionally, when I was younger, I remember hanging out with Ephraim. I don't know if he's here, but, but Ephraim would always tell me about uh, the, the various trips he had to make when he worked in the oil field. Man, and I remember a couple of things. Two things that always stood out was, and the, the second was the most important, but the first thing that always stood out was Ephraim always told me that coffee didn't work on long trips. It was always going to be sunflower seeds. To this day, when we drive anywhere, I'm always chewing sunflower seeds because that's what Ephraim told me to do. And then the second thing, the second thing is there was, there was no, uh, there was no, like, there was no question like Ephraim would travel to all different uh, cities in Texas. He would travel to Louisiana and do whatever it is he needed to do for three, six months straight so that he could provide for his family. There was never this question of like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Like he went and found work. He went and jumped back into the oil rigs. He started his own business that was doing like, it was, it was a startup, but he knew he needed to go back to the oil rigs and do whatever it is he needed to do. There was never like this, well, I don't know what's next. He just always 
went and kept on going and taught me what it looked like to never make an excuse in light of, of, of providing for your family. And so that was cool. I remember our first men's retreat, uh, my friend uh, brought his stepdad. And this is 10 years ago. He brought his stepdad. His stepdad's name is Brian. I gravitated to Brian immediately. He reminded me of my father if he was a Christian. And so I was constantly just asking Brian all sorts of questions, all sorts of questions. And uh, he could tell that I was like, uh, like this stray dog in his backyard. And I just wanted to hang out. And so Brian is constantly talking to me. And I remember he left on a Sunday. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, many years ago. He left on a Sunday. And I was maybe a Christian for about three, four months at the time. And so Brian puts his arm around me. Uh, he puts his arm around me and he says, now I need you to stop doing drugs. And I mean it. And for some reason that clicked, right? And, uh, and so I stopped. And then <laughs> I remember growing up, uh, what, what, used to, uh, what I used to think was just being yelled at eventually turned into a lesson. One of the guys that I've been raised by is my eldest brother, right? His name is Juan, but nobody calls him Juan. Everybody calls him Mehmet because that's his name. So Mehmet uh, pretty much raised me. And so he was constantly, uh, t- every, time I made, every time I made money, I remember a friend of mine, Chucho and I, we, 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 uh, we cut grass. And so we would get money and Mehmet would say, save it, save it, save it like that. It was never nice. It was like, save it. Don't spend it. Save it. And he would constantly do this all of the time, all of the time, all of the time. I remember when I got my first, uh, like, paid job, like a paycheck. I was working at Pizza Hut on 23rd, and Mehmet would keep my paychecks. Homeboy wouldn't even let me cash them. He would keep them, and he kept them in a shoebox, and he just kept, kept them and all this stuff. And then we'd go and cash them together, and he'd say, this is how you budget. Now you have all this money. This is how you budget. This is how you don't spend. This is how you should spend. This is how you do all of these different things. My brothers always taught me weird things. And, uh, and the point of all of this, the point of all of this is that, actually, there's two things. When we're talking about discipleship, some of you may have never heard of discipleship, and we'll talk about that later. When it comes to discipleship, class is always in session. If I could give you a, a, a bit of, like, I don't want to call it wisdom, but if I could give you a golden nugget, it would be that class is always in session when it comes to discipleship. The second thing I would tell you is that discipleship is is not an option for the Christian. It's a lifestyle. Discipleship is not an option for the Christian. It is a lifestyle. And as we begin to walk through chapter 2, one of the first things that came to mind after I, I began studying it is Everything that Paul is telling Titus has nothing to do with gifting or talent. None of this is about gifting or talent, but it is about the responsibility of people in the church. It is about the responsibility that as Christians we hold to, not because of some formal ministry position or some formal ministry title, but because we are Christians. And that's what Paul is getting to. And so he addresses really five people. He's going into six, but whatever. I'll talk about that little, uh, in, in a little bit. And what I want to do is I, I want to not necessarily walk through this quickly, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I do want to talk about discipleship. And maybe I'll just be long-winded. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out as we go. But the first person that Paul addresses, or I should say this, in verse 1, he says, teach what is 
what accords with sound doctrine. So in light of everything that Paul has already been talking to Titus about, he says, man, make sure that everybody is doing this in light of what the word of God says. And so he begins with older men. When it comes to older men, if we're looking at, uh, if we're looking at age, I'm not looking at age. It is the Bible. Um, when it comes to, to looking at, at age, if we're looking at, like, well, who's considered an older man? In the context that Paul is writing to, he's considering anyone who's 50 years and older. And so he really gives four things. And I'll, and I'll reread this or I'll just jump into it, but he gives four things that he wants older men to be. He says that they are to be sober-minded. That's the first thing. So older gents, the first thing is when it comes to being sober-minded, it means that you're free from addiction. It means that you're free from addiction, that you are sound, not only in your decision, but in your judgment, that you are discerning. That's what it means to be sober-minded, that your judgment or your decisions aren't clouded because of, mm, because of addiction, because of other distractions, but you're very clear in how you approach things because you are sober-minded. He says that older men are to be dignified. What does it mean to be dignified? Man, it means that you are worthy of respect. Older men are to be worthy of respect. Man, respect is, is uh, you, you hear it constantly, right? It's not, it's not uh, what is it? It's not earned, or it is earned. It's not given, one of those things, right? When it comes to respect, it's because of the reputation the individual carries. It's because of the character of that individual. It's because of what you can count on that individual to do or be in times where no one else will. That they are dignified. That they are to be self-controlled. And when we talk about self-control, one of the things you'll notice is that Paul uses the word self-controlled three times in this section. So it's a big deal. So when he's talking to older men, he says, you are to be self-controlled. What he is talking about when he refers to self-control, he is talking about abstaining from worldly passions, abstaining from these, not just distractions, but these desires that come at you in terms of temptation, that you are able to abstain from them, that you are able to rebuke them, and that you're able to maintain the course, that you are to be self-controlled. And then the last one that he says about older men is my favorite. He says that you were to be sound. And then he gives like, I don't know, uh, a sub points when it comes to sound. He says that you are to be sound in faith. You are to be sound in love. And you are to be sound in steadfastness. Right? But when I think about this, I'm going to blow him up a little bit. When I think about this, I think of Gary. Like that's the man I want to be. When it comes to being sound in faith. In other words, faith is submission to the word of God. And I see that in Gary, that he's submitted to the word of God. And as a result, he simply doesn't just believe in God. He believes God. That's a big difference. That is a big difference because he believes God. Then it naturally transitions into love that he is able to demonstrate self-sacrificially, self-sacrificial love in his care in his time in his service that who that is who the older man is supposed to be to demonstrate self-sacrificial love and finally sound in steadfastness another word for steadfastness is to persevere that the older man is supposed to be sound in their perseverance that they are to be sound in their perseverance 
in light of adversity, in light of pressure, especially when it comes to a cultural pressure, a cultural context. You see, in this context that Paul is writing to Titus, there's a lot of things going on in the cities on the island of Crete. There are a lot of things that are going on that are contrary to the word of God. And so what he is saying to Titus as he addresses older men, he says, man, you want them sound, uh, you want them sound in their perseverance that in spite of what's going on around them about what the culture is telling them to do, that they are going to persevere because of their faith in God, his word and his promises. That could be translated into our time today, that there are several cultural pressures going on around us or the church, and there is a pressure to conform to each one of these pressures, whatever it may be. And Paul says that the older man will be sound in his perseverance because of his faith in God, because of his faith in God's word. And we will see that. You see, the, the secret of soundness is a commitment to the truth of the gospel. And as a result, faith will express itself in service. Paul goes on to address older women. Same category as the older men. He says a couple of things about the older women. Women are nervous. <laughs> says a couple of things about the women. First thing that he tells the women is that you're to be reverent in behavior, that your behavior, man, reflects respect or it commands respect because of how godly you are, because you pursue godliness, because you pursue holiness. That is what your conduct reveals. See, one of the things you're going to notice, whether we're talking about older men or young men, is that everything is ultimately going to point to the person and work of Jesus. At some point, Every time we do this, we're preaching something. You are preaching something. Whether you are a single dude or a married woman, you are preaching something. So he says, women, older women, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers and addicted to much wine. Here's what was going on as to why he addresses those two things specifically. The context and what was happening is some of these older women were getting together because they were empty nesters. Empty nesters are what? When the, when the kids go off to college, right? Everybody leaves the house. Alfin, finally. They leave the house, right? They're at the University of Crete or whatever. And so everybody's going. And so what's going on is these older women are getting together. They're hanging out. Man, they have deserved this time, right? Because the house is empty now. This is so awesome. I love this. And so what are they doing? They're popping some wine. They're enjoying some time together. That's cool. What ends up happening is that it becomes a little bit too much. And a little bit too much turns into slandering, where they're speaking behind other people's backs, where they're gossiping about other people. And so one of the questions I tend to ask is, well, well then how do I know if I'm a slanderer? One thing you need to know is that slandering someone is a sign of bitterness. It's a sign of bitterness. So how do, you, how do you know? Number one, it's always someone else's fault. If only someone else could do something different, if only someone else could change it, that's how you know you're bitter. Because it's always someone else's fault. 
The second thing that comes to mind when it comes to uh, bitterness or slandering, it's you're constantly playing the details over and over in your head. It's been a year. It's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 25 years. You're playing these details over and over and over again in your head. That's a slanderer. That's someone who is gripped, gripped by bitterness. Or addicted to wine. Addicted to wine. He's not saying you can't have a glass. Why shouldn't you be addicted? It clouds your judgment. It clouds your judgment. It clouds your judgment. It keeps you from being sound. The next thing he goes on to say about older women is that instead, instead of being a slander, instead of being addicted to wine, right, he goes on to say that you are to teach what is good. That you are to teach what is good. Now, I would add to this, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that when it comes to teaching what is good, it is teaching what is good in accordance to what Scripture says. You can look at Philippians 4 for that. We want to be able to discern, we want to be able to teach what is good, what is pleasing, what is noble in light of the work of God, in light of what God has said, in order to point people to the person and work of Jesus, to teach what is good. In addition to teaching what is good is to train the younger women. That older women are to disciple, are to invest, are to train the younger women. That means including them in daily things, including them in what you already got going on, including them in your failures, including them in your failures, including them in your victory, including them in the craziness that is your house. One of the things that comes with discipleship that ultimately comes up in conversation is, is it always formal? No, it's not always formal, but class is always in session. Class is always in session. So we're to, you are to train the younger women. Bring them alongside of you. Walk with them in their walk with the Lord, in their walk in their life. Walk with them. Point them to the work of Jesus. Point them to the person of Jesus. Point them to sound doctrine. Point them to what it looks like to walk after failure. What does it look like to walk in light of success? Train the younger women. And he moves on. He continues. He continues. So train the young women to love their husbands and their children. I'll I'll read all of this and I'll go back to it. To love their husbands and their children. To be self-controlled. There's that word again. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. So that the word of God may not be reviled. Love their husbands. So what he tells younger women, man, love your husbands, love your children, right? That's incredibly important, especially in light of a couple of other things that he says. He says, love their husbands, love their children, that they are to work from home and to be submissive. I'll talk about everything else in just a moment. The beauty of what Paul is saying in Titus, in this section for younger women is that he gives you a beautiful order. Man, first, that your heart would be aligned with the person and work of Jesus. Number two, man, that you would submit to your husband. Now, that does not mean be dominated by your husband. That does not mean domineered by your husband. 
But submission to godly leadership is because his eyes are on the person and work of Jesus. Because he is leading the family in a sound and godly way. So be submissive to your husbands. That also includes be submissive to your husband as your husband is figuring it out. Because your husband's going to drop the ball, ladies. He's going to drop the ball a lot. And I say that because the last thing, and I'm skipping ahead, but the last thing Paul says is, so that the gospel may not be reviled. That the admonishment for young women who are, who are married or who have kids, the admonishment here is that you would protect the gospel. That you would protect the gospel by how you follow and submit your husband. That you would protect the gospel by how you love your children. That you would protect the gospel by how you manage your home. Now, that does not mean you can't work professionally. We have several professional women here who are beasts at what they do. Okay? He's not saying that. But what he is saying, he is saying that the house is managed well. The house is managed well. Another way of saying that is that your husband and children do not go neglected. There's a big difference there. That the husband and the children do not go neglected. You could work professionally and then use that as a reason like, man, I, I'm strong, I'm intellectual. Yeah, you are. You're, you're super strong and you're super intellectual and you're a beast at what you do and you neglect your family at home. That's that's not a marriage issue. That's a heart issue. Okay? You, especially on that verse, we can twist it and say a bunch of different things. Man, is your first love God? And then is it your husband? And then is it your children? That you were to manage the house well. He also goes on to say to be self-controlled and, and pure. When he is talking about self-control and purity in this section, he is talking about young women's faithfulness to their husband. Faithfulness to their husband. That doesn't just mean that you are tempted by these other things, but it also implies how you treat them. It also implies how you treat your husbands. Because he then goes on to say, be kind. Some wives are really mean. Some dudes are really mean, but we're talking about young women. Some wives are mean. Or can be. I say it that way. They can be. So he says, be self-controlled and pure in your faithfulness to your husband. Be kind. Be kind. And protect the gospel. Remember, whether it's to another Christian or a non-Christian, you're always preaching something. You're always preaching something. And if you're constantly justifying behavior or speech, you're preaching something. Many times what you're preaching is a false gospel. Then he goes on to address the young men. Now this one's a little funny in the sense that he only gives them one thing. Right? But if you read the verse, he says, likewise. Yeah, likewise is a big deal. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Number one, he uses the word likewise because he's reaching back to what he's already said. 
All right, so younger dudes, it's like, I got, I got one thing, that's it. But you got all those other things that we just covered. All right, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This is what I want you to do. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. It's for everybody. And then you younger, and now the younger men, when he's addressing, we've given ages, right? He's talking to the guys who are in their 20s to the 40s. All right, here we go. Some of you teens, like my son, this applies to you too. All right, here we go. This is Galatians 5, 22 to 24. This is what he says. This is what Paul writes. He says, but the fruit, now that's an important way of saying it because he doesn't say fruits. He says the fruit, it's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Young men, your life is to be marked by your submission to the Spirit. A heart submitted to Christ will exhibit self-control. You don't get off easy. You do not get off easy. Your life is marked by your submission to the Spirit. A heart submitted to Christ will exhibit self-control. It is not just the practical staying focused and saying no to these passions and saying no to these desires. It's that these passions and desires have been crucified on the cross. That's what it implies. That you are not your own anymore that you have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you live now, you live in faith because of the Son of God who died for you. That is what it means to be self-controlled. You do not get off easy. And then he continues and he turns it on to Titus. And he tells Titus, show yourself in all respects. Now mind you, Titus is a young pastor. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. He's addressing Titus as the leader, but he's also addressing Titus as the young man. And what he is telling Titus is you be an example also. So that would also be the next thing for younger men, including younger men. You also be an example how can you be an example? Ask questions. That is one of the best things you can do. You can ask questions. You will never know if you don't ask. One of the things I tell my son all of the time is I will give you always an answer. It's going to be yes, no, or not now, but you're going to get an answer. Whether you like it or not is on you, but you will always get an answer. All right. Ask questions. Be an example. Don't just sit around and wait and say, man, someone's going to invest in me. Be an example. That is what he is calling us to here. Show yourself in good works. Be an example. Additionally, let's go to 1 Peter, uh, what is this, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 
This is what Peter writes. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's talking to Christians, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Check it, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The gospel bears witness through our conduct. It is both through proclamation and practice. The gospel bears witness through your conduct. You're preaching something to someone. And it is not just an implication for people in the church. It's for those who are outside and don't know Jesus. The gospel bears witness to your conduct. And finally, he closes with bond servants. They would be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative. When we're talking about bond servants, what we're talking about in our context would ultimately be employer, employee, someone in authority, someone who's under authority, right? He gives a couple of things in light of people who, if you have a job, this is for you. If you have a job, this is for you. If you are a student, this is for you. If you are a uh, son or a daughter, this is for you. He goes on to say, man, be submissive. The word submissive here is the same that he used for uh, younger women to be submissive in the sense that when it comes to being submissive, what you are doing at work is going to preach something about the gospel. It's going to preach something about the gospel. Inevitably, what we're looking at is that God chose the church to reveal himself to a world that doesn't know Jesus. Our obedience is directly connected to our theology. Our obedience is directly connected to our theology. Now, when it comes to submissive, I'm not asking you to be uh, taken advantage by your boss, to uh, be disrespected, to do something illegal, immoral, or unethical. We're not talking about that. But as you have a boss or a professor or a teacher or a parent, the idea here is that in your submission, you would be preaching the gospel through your obedience. He goes on to say to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Well-pleasing, man, that you have a good work ethic, that you finish the job, that you knock out the task, not that you did half of it, not that you did three-fourths of it, not that you did most of it, not that you did what you thought would be good, but you knocked it out. You completed it. You finished it. That's what it means to be well-pleasing, that your work ethic is on par with your word. Not argumentative. That's disrespectful to your boss or disrespectful to your professor or disrespectful to those who are in authority over you, disrespectful to them, talking back to them, man, slamming them, slandering them. Not argumentative. And check it. He finishes this off by saying, showing good faith. None of this. Not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they, he's talking about the bond servants, he's talking about us who are under authority, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I told you to underline that word adorn, right? Here's why it's so intentional. <clears throat> Here's why it's so intentional. Number one, 
when we look at the context in which Paul is writing, and he uses the word adorn, the only people who would adorn anyone or anything are upscale, high-end, super rich people. Who is he telling to adorn? He's telling the servants to adorn those who don't know Jesus. He is telling the least of these to adorn those who don't know Jesus by proclaiming the gospel through their conduct and their obedience. The least of these is who he chooses to adorn, the ones who haven't figured out. That is a beautiful, beautiful reminder of the gospel. That our aim is to glorify Christ and through our obedience and conduct, we adorn those with the gospel. That is the call of every believer. That he has chosen the least of these to adorn those who don't know Jesus. And when he says, with the doctrine of God our Savior, he's referring to the Father and what the Father has done. That in love he has pursued us, right? That he has chosen us, that he has um, uh, rescued us, uh, that he has chosen you specifically. You weren't an afterthought, that he is very incredibly intentional in his love and pursuit for his children. And it takes the least of these to adorn those who don't know him. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of the gospel. As we close up, let's talk a little bit about discipleship. Here's what we define discipleship as. This is where we start getting into the practical. Here's what we define discipleship as. Discipleship, as we define it, is meeting people where they're at and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Right? Simple, not easy. But nevertheless, that's how we define discipleship. And we draw that directly from the Gospels. When you see the life of Jesus, Jesus, uh, man, he meets these 12 dudes where they're at, and then he shares his life with them for three years, right? For three years, he shares his life with these 12 dudes. Uh, and that's everything. Like, that's not just looking at the big things, right? Like miracles and uh, feeding the 5,000 and, man, seeing even Peter walk on water for a step or two. Like, that's not just that. That's also, like, the travel time. Have you ever traveled with anyone? You get to know them really well when you travel with them for a couple of days. That's what happened. They're on foot, right? They're, like, traveling together all of the time. At some point, they had to eat together, right? So they're getting to have different conversation. There were some dude jokes, probably, whatever. All of these guys, Jesus is with them, and he's walking with them for 12 years, or excuse me, for, for three years, these 12 men. Discipleship is meeting people where they're at and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. That's how we define discipleship. So in light of that, one of the things I told you at the beginning is that discipleship is not an option for the believer. It is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle that as a believer, your life is not only marked by what God has done for you, what God is doing in you, but also what God is doing through you, okay? So here are three practical realities, thanks. Here are three practical realities about discipleship, and I'll expand on each one briefly. The first one is that discipleship happens in the context of ordinary life. Discipleship happens in everyday life. That's the simple way of saying that, Right? All of the cool things always happen like on a Monday at three o'clock. 
nothing really special about it. At least it doesn't feel like there's anything special about it, but it happens in the context of everyday life. Uh, when it comes to, uh, like sometimes it's, it's conferences that I have to go to. Sometimes I have to do some Acts 29 things. I will bring a couple of guys with me because I get to spend that time with them. I'm already going to where I need to go. I will just include them on that journey. And it's always fun because I get to know them a little bit more. We get to travel with one another and you learn a bunch of weird things, right? On top of that, it doesn't have to be event-based, I'll bring some of the guys over when I'm getting dinner ready for the family. I'll take some of the guys with me as I am grocery shopping. I got to go run errands. I got to go pay bills. I got to go do everyday normal things. So I might as well just bring them with me. Discipleship happens in the context of everyday life. All those conversations that I had with those men, that happened in regular, ordinary, nothing special, at the dinner table, at a coffee shop, life. It happens in the context of everyday life. The question is, how intentional are you about making sure that happens? See, discipleship isn't necessarily about adding more to your schedule. It's about bringing people along with what you already have. There are times where the fridge is totally empty, so having one or two of the guys with me to carry the groceries is awesome. Okay? I've taught them a lot. I've taught them budgeting, and I've taught them how to farmer carry with bags in each hand. Good right? That's what we're looking at. It happens in the context of everyday life. Number two, discipleship happens in community. When it came to those conversations that I talked to you about earlier, man, that means I'm constantly, I was constantly around those men. Man, I'm constantly getting poured into by those men. It happens in community. Many Christians are like, yes, I love that, but I don't like the community part. You don't get Jesus without the church, okay? It doesn't work that way. You do not get Jesus without the church. So it happens in community. Why should it happen in community? One, in community, there's safety. Two, in community, you get to see a lot of different things. You get to be poured in by so many different people. You get to invest in so many other people. In addition to that, when it happens in community, everything happens in community. Conflict happens in community. Disagreement happens in community. Happiness sometimes happens in community. All of these different things happen in community. You know what? That's really good. You're telling me that out of the three years, outside of what we see in the Bible, out of the three years, none of those 12 dudes ever wrestled with one another. None of those 12 guys ever had an argument because maybe they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. None of those guys ever did something to like uh, anger the other one. Like there was never any conflict. Man, if you don't believe that, then uh, I don't know, maybe you didn't have brothers or weren't raised around boys, right? I'm one of four boys. There was constant conflict happening in our house. One of my prized possessions is showing my son this like, uh, oh, what's it called? Like that putty that you put on the wall after there was a hole there. That's because my head went through it. And so I showed my son like, yeah, this is where Mehmet put me through all this stuff. Like that happens in everything happens in community. And that's good. It's good that conflict happens because what conflict teaches us is that there's something still wrong with you. There's something still wrong with me. Ultimately, there's something wrong with us and we need a savior. We need to reconcile this. We need to work through this. We need to walk alongside of one another in this. Discipleship happens in community. Discipleship involves vulnerability, apart from or even including those conversations that I uh, gave you an illustration about earlier today. Those men had to become vulnerable to share some of those details and to share their life with some 20-some-year-old kid. 
They brought me into their life and they displayed vulnerability. They put the credibility of the gospel on the table and welcomed me into their home and displayed vulnerability. Okay? And that's hard because that's weird, right? Our community group has literally come over to the house 30 minutes after Rebecca and I have gotten in an argument. That's weird. It's weird. But we welcome them in there so that we can walk them through Like, man, what's painting my heart? What's painting hers? How we can work through this. That's a good thing, right? I trust them. I want them to not only see and be a part of that, but I want them to speak into me. Just like those men spoke into me, they allowed and required themselves to be vulnerable. Not just in something like Gary's specific prayer or in how hard Ephraim was working, but more importantly, in their failures, in their failure as a husband, in their failure as fathers. They brought me in and other men in that so that we could learn, so that we could feel safe and comfortable and saying, man, I'm, I'm messing it up here too. So I'm not alone. And they'd look at you, sip a, out of their cup of coffee and say, of course not. Discipleship happens in the context of ordinary life. It happens in community and it involves vulnerability. And it is the responsibility of the Christian. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Judges. This is Judges chapter 2. Where am I? Yeah, this is Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Here is the question. I'll read the verse, then I'll give you the answer. What happens when we don't invest, disciple, or teach? Let's see, here we go. Joshua 2, verses uh, 8 through 10. So he says, And Joshua, and if you don't know who Joshua was, here's a quick context. If you don't know who Joshua was, Joshua was Moses' second-hand guy. Moses dies, Joshua takes over, he's the general, he wins all these wars, he's like a manly man, he's awesome, right? He's the guy that's distributing land at the end of the book of Joshua, and he's also well known for one of the most quotable verses in Scripture, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? With confidence, guys, come on. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Verse 8, he says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. Skipping ahead, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So the question was, what happens when we don't invest or disciple or teach Two things. Number one, we lose the gospel because we assumed it. We lose the gospel just because we assumed it. How do we assume the gospel? We assume the gospel in the context of a community group. Everybody who's present at a community group must be a Christian. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been here. Everybody who's here on Sunday morning is a Christian. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been here on a Sunday morning. We assume the gospel. When the gospel is assumed, the next transition is that it is lost. We lose the gospel because we assumed it. And number two, we lose the next generation. We lose the next generation. That's what happens when we do not disciple 
So again, it's not whether or not you're called to it. It is literally the only thing Jesus told the church to do. Go and make disciples. Nowhere on there does it say go and make converts. He said go and make disciples. It is not an option for the Christian. It is a lifestyle. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 has nothing to do with special gifts or talents, has everything to do with the context of ordinary life, and that we're all called to be in that muddy, murky mess of it. For the glory of Christ, for the purpose of making disciples, because if you are a Christian, you are a disciple, and your role is to make disciples. For the glory of Christ, for the purpose of making disciples and seeing people come to know Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, as we close our time, Lord, man, number one, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for allowing us to walk through your word. Thank you for allowing us to, man, hear from you and your Holy Spirit. Lord, my prayer, my prayer, God, is that we would, through your Spirit, be convicted, that we would be challenged not just to dive into your word, but to obey. God, you call us to obey because you're a good father. You call us to obey not so that we can earn your love, but because you have already loved us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for sinners. God, you have been pursuing us in love from the beginning, teaching us from the beginning, particularly through our failures. And God, as we close our time, my prayer is that your spirit would ignite a passion for discipleship and responsibility in and outside the walls of the church so that you would be glorified, so that disciples would be made, and so that the name of Jesus would be made famous. God, we love you, and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.